You know, I think this is especially true in our own families. Like on both sides, our grandmothers adopted babies that were part informally, right? But adopted babies that weren't necessarily their own, but still relatives, or in some cases, you know, um, not necessarily relatives, but that they took and raised as their own. And I think it just is a testament to Black love and Black families um, and how it doesn't necessarily fit in this little box of a nuclear family or a family that you would call a nuclear family or people would think of when they think of the the mom, the dad, the 2.5 kids, the dog, the picket fence, you know, like this is still an American family. I do want to talk about love today. I want to talk about black love. Ooh, okay. What kind of black love? We talking blackity black, spill house, kind of shaking your boots kind of love? What kind of black love you want to talk about, girl? No, I mean, we're on the hills, um, the heels of the holiday season. Mm. So I think it would be really nice to talk about black family love. You know, what comes up for you when I say black family or black family love? Like, are there certain like images or words that really come to mind when I say that, Nev? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I think of our own black family and how much love is in that family. Um, I think of, you know, um, our cousins, aunties, uncles, and they're just being like an abundance of love limitless what about the word matriarch or matriarchy does that word come to mind at all for you like do you associate that word with black families yeah for sure absolutely i think like our mother's side of the family um is uh matriarchal uh and was run by women and by grandmother um it's funny because i think um our cousin sabrina talked about it in one of our uh, previous episodes. That's why I'm so gung-ho on rooting for Black women, on believing in Black women, and knowing that Black women are truly the future. Hey, I love that. Well, that, you know, matriarchy, strong women, women-led households, that all comes up for me too. But what I didn't know was in 1965, Daniel Patrick Monahan published a manuscript called The Negro Family, the case for national action. And this white sociologist, later senator, and later assistant secretary of labor, actually stereotyped black families as matriarchal in nature, but then deemed them problematic because of the presence of women in women-led households specifically. And also highlighted the use of public assistance like welfare. So when you think of words like welfare queen and mm. so on. Um, I think that really started to gain traction after the publication of this um, this piece. So what comes up for you now? <laughs> this ethnocentric white space defining like what is good and all this other stuff. But I think one thing that you really said that resonates or sticks out to me is like, yeah, this depiction of a welfare queen and that being... Um, centered around like picture of like a black woman uh single parent trying to juggle babies and stuff when really like white women are the ones in the biggest use users of welfare i think about systems and uh biases prejudices and and, and all that yeah and we'll dig into that a little bit more 
Um, but specifically, Moynihan said that the matriarchy of black families created this tangle of pathology. His yeah. words, not mine. But this tangle of pathology propelled the cycle of poverty and deprivation among black people in the U.S. And what's interesting to me is like in the period following the release of Moynihan's report, that black female headed households became the central representation of what a black family was and specifically representations of poverty in American society, all centered around black female led households. Um, and the reasons really have more to do with like this idea of perception and politics and less to do with the reality because researchers have found that like during that time and even still today, there were far more female-led households that were white and poor than that were black and poor. And so that's just like mind-blowing because when you think of, right, single parents and what the media shows is like women-led households, like you said, it tends to be that black woman-led household juggling babies, not a white woman. Just because it's different or, and even, you know, what I said just a second ago is not, it's actually not different than um, white families, but just this use of, difference or divergence or whatever from the white norm as mm. problematic or wrong. And I think that's a big issue. That was a big issue with this report. And specifically, Moynihan used the discussion about babies out, born out of wedlock for like fodder for the racist and racist ideals, which still persists today. Like this idea that black and Latina women, their reproductive habits are somehow are divergent or um, prob problematic or um, somehow deviant than others. And it's those habits that keep them down when we all know it's the system, like you said before. Hmm. This, you know, and as you're speaking more about this, I am kind of blown back, and this is a little bit of a backtrack, though, by the, like, hypocrisy of this idea of tangle of pathology. Can you can you just, like, repeat that line and how matriarchy is connected to that? Yeah, so Moynihan really felt like this idea of this um, tangle of pathology was driven by women leading households, women being single parents, fathers not being around, um, them reliance on the system of welfare and um, other public assistance, as well as um, those women that had babies that were out of wetlock and um, really were the reason or the drivers for their own poverty. So essentially saying the family structure here was the reason why black people um, were not as far when it came to economic advantages as white people. It was because of the very problem in the structure that existed in their mm. families. His point was largely that it was the, the absence of like, you know, a, a male presence and women leading all these things and, and kind of being a drain on the system that caused this domino effect on everything else. And one of the main reasons why this report is so infamous and particularly for me, like problematic is like I said, this person 
not only became a senator and became the assistant secretary of labor. So when you're thinking about racist ideals that show up right in government and politics and policies, that's huge. But even before that, when this report came out, he influenced very important political leaders at the time, President Lyndon B. Johnson cited the Black family as a reason for the delay of progress in Black people when I said this report was in 1965, right? So people were calling for like government action when it came to discrimination, expansion of welfare and whatever. So to influence a president and have the president cite, you know, the Black family structure as a reason Mm. for these problems is huge. And not only just saying it, but you're the president of the United States. So you influence policy and the perception of people largely. And one of the phrases that I found later on is another um, sociologist, you know, pushed back against this, um, this idea. And the phrase of Uh, blaming the victim kind of came from or was associated with um, this report. Mm. I'm well, if anything good came from it, I'm glad that little itty bitty part did, you know, this kind of reminds me of uh, a couple things, these ideas, how they've transferred to or been embedded to also like the black church and black culture. Can we go there yet? Is that a place we can go? Yeah. Say more. I want to hear how you connect this. Well, you know, this idea of family structure, particularly female-led households being problematic and being the downfall of Black America or whatever have you, I think of like the Black church and messages that I've heard in the Black church um, about, and when I say Black church, a a Christian church, um, I think about like messages from the pulpit around how men are there to lead households households and that when they're not there that's when children act out and they need a father figure in their lives and they need all of this and while I'm not saying that it's important for everyone to have right the more social supports the better but I always always like kind of rolled my eyes because one that church was often upheld and had a lot of influence um, and strength from black women right in itself and while I didn't necessarily think this idea was a white cultural ideal, like I didn't like res- like that wasn't at the forefront. It just seemed to not fit my my personal narrative of being in a household and households that were run by women. And so I just think right that bigger point that you make, like how these stereotypical ideals and beliefs get to be implemented and influenced through things like policy and other people like that's not just right white people that drank that kool-aid but also i've seen it in black people and when i think about like not just black church but overall black culture i see a push of um and in blaming women for how a child turns out when there's not a black male present and even more it being um or a black man present and even more it being used as a way to really police and dehumanize queer people and queer experiences i've Mm. seen that really really come up and be hurtful for folks do you want to say more about that sure i think like like there's these fake beliefs uh, or connections that uh women black especially black women alone 
will do harm, will feminize a child. One, as if that's a bad thing. And the fear being, oh, your child will turn out gay if they don't have the right and positive black male influences or their father. Um, and so it seems like this report that was released by Moynihan was far-reaching and internalized in a lot of ways. Mm, I really appreciate you making that connection to the black church. There's so many things and maybe we should have an episode on that in the future. It's just like what you said about how, you know, mainly black women run and keep the church, at least in black communities that I've seen, keep the black church really, really going, right? It's, it's the, the followers, the congregation mostly is women, right? And black women. So it's really interesting how you bring that up and almost like a devaluation for the efforts and hard work of black women, even though not only are they running their families, but they're also keeping the church alive in many ways. Um, and how just being a black woman or a single woman raising a family is not enough, right? It's not good enough. And beyond, like you were saying, we know it takes a community, right, to raise a child. So not that, but just that your presence as a, as a woman, as a black mother is not enough, to, to make sure that your, your child is successful or thrives or whatever. Um, and we, you know, we don't even have enough time to get to dig into what you said earlier about, you know, not having a man present being, um, um, leading to the gender identity, sexual orientation, what have you of your child, just bullshit. Can I, can I say one other thing real quick? <laughs> just <laughs> Go uh, go for it. Th this, and I think this is an example, but this is just like systems. Men get to make this report and say that y'all are struggling because men are not there, right? Y'all are, harm is being done because men are not there. And so what does that create? That creates also like this need to uplift black men in ways where it might be also at times to the detriment of women. Oh, so I need to stay in this like maybe harmful relationship with this black man because they're hard to come by or I need to be grateful or I need to do this. And it's like, oh, major eye roll and frustration <laughs> around. But I think like, right, for me, that frustration that I feel is like, um, a manifestation of this of, of systems at work preach i mean are we in charge right now today? are you are we uh, <laughs> at the church of dr nevin Hur? hey today? here here we go uh deacon deacon dr <laughs> nevin Hur, uh preacher you know all are welcome um yeah so we should we should dive into that more in another episode i want to also talk about kinship ties because I mm. think, you know, when we talk about family love and family kinship, this is really, I think, central to the the themes of a black family and how people think come to think about black families. So I told you Moynihan threw all the shade to black families and the structures in women specifically, right? But you know, scholars after Moynihan argued about the importance of these kinship ties, especially in the face of oppression, like especially in the face of like racism, discrimination, right? Beatings, like all of the things that were happening in the 60s and continue to happen today and how these ties are so, so, so important. Um, so I just want to highlight this for a second and talk to you about like kinship ties. So one of the, um, one of the like articles I came across were talking about kinship ties being stronger 
in lower income families as opposed to like middle income families. So because of structural racism, kinship ties needed to be strong and be strong in black households more so than in white households, right? Because they needed that community, then they needed that protection and that village to be there. So, and I think we can even see that in our own, in our own families and how strong these ties are. So one of the things, you know, the research mentions is that black families are more accustomed to taking relatives into their houses. Um, And these relatives tended to be children, but it's even true for like households that didn't necessarily have their own children. They were more likely to take in relatives, take in children and guess which households tended to do that. They're not (laughs) men-led. So there were women, you know, women-led households tended to take in um, elder relatives and families with elderly women taking the largest amount, the largest Mm. percentage of um, relatives in and kids in. What do you think? Well, it sounds like you are right now discussing my life story we grew up in a um intergenerational household and so i think about like those strong kinship ties also being necessary for us to you know like be where we are today because uh we didn't have we for some people i think they can take a risk and fall back on their nuclear family or, or or kind of themselves but we weren't, I feel like our family wasn't even taking risk. We were just, you know, living in a racist uh, world. And so we couldn't fall back on our nuclear family, but luckily we had um, our other grandparents and things to fall back on. Yeah. I mean, we were so lucky. It's like the original black safety net, if you will. You know, so like I said, for women led households, 41% of black women compared to 7% of white women would take in relatives and take in family. And again, elderly women were the largest. So they took, you know, 48% of people that took in um, families or children into their household were elderly women. So you brought up, you know, living with Uncle Frank and Aunt Stella. And I think really clearly about living with grandmother, mom's mom, right? And like us having an intergenerational family and household then. And Partly what comes up for me when I think about that is I think of two things. I think of structural racism. One of the things that came up in the literature is like how families would double up. So families that were migrating from the South to come to the North would often take their families in, right? And when you think about racism and people like trying to flee and find a better life, and then you also think about restrictive covenants, when you think about, right, like all of the, the, the ways in which the society kept Black people and people of color out of housing, they didn't have any choice, right? They came, they came to a new state, a new city, and found themselves not able to purchase a home, found themselves not able to have opportunities. So they lived with other family until they could get on their feet or whatever. And they needed that. They needed that kind of protection. And that kinship was strong then, and I feel like it's strong now. You, you will often see multiple generations living in a household together. And it's not abnormal for Black families, for Latinx families, for families of color, right? So that's something that is important and I think still to this day. 
Right. And you and you talked about grandmother's house. I want to take a moment to own also something that I did because I did mention Uncle Frank and Aunt Stella, but I want to call attention to like really it was grandma's house, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 led us in. So it was still this matriarchal house. Yeah, and I think the other thing, so like we talked about that racism was really up front and center for me um when we we're talking about this, but also like one thing I really didn't realize until you know, like doing the work for this podcast is as a pediatrician, I see a ton of children that are in um, the foster care system, right? Or we call it, I think I've said this before, youth in care. And this narrative that has been sold to me and that I very much believed until really looking at the work here was that Black children, you know, were not adopted as much out of the system as white children, which is true. But the reason um, around that being, you know, black families are not wanting to adopt black children or white families not wanting to adopt um, black children, which may be true, but the black family part was really interesting, right? So this idea of kinship ties and that black families are already taking in children and already taking in having extra um, mouths to feed and, you know, clothes to put on people. It's this idea of informal adoption and the adoption of relatives is really, really uh, um, common in Black families. So Black Black babies are less likely to be cared for back in the day in the formal adoption system, the formal child welfare system. So essentially, Black people had to create their own networks to get their their babies adopted and cared for. And it generally tended to be people that were already in the family. So grandmothers, aunties, those people were already, you know, caring for someone else's baby or a relative's baby. And because they couldn't trust the child welfare system or the adoption system, they created their own network. And so this idea, you know, that Black people wouldn't adopt other ba- their you know black babies wasn't true because it was already happening and in fact in 1969 160,000 babies were adopted quote unquote in already existing black families so they were already doing it so it was hard to take on more babies when you're already got babies and kids living in your house so black people were busy adopting babies you just may not see them adopting babies from the system formally um and so that was really an important realization for me because I we, I think we've seen it in our own family. We've seen it in our own lives. Yeah. And it's true. It's not really abnormal that you have a grandmother raising a grandkid, right? Like it happens and it happens in our own families. So yeah, like the black families and the thoughts about women leading households have been front and center, I think, for, you know, my life. And what has been really the inspiration for me in this podcast is thinking about our own households and them being women-led. And specifically the sadness I felt when I felt like those matriarchs, our grandmothers, have passed and what that meant for our the current state of our family how close we are, do we still get together, and all of those, the things that come with being a family. I felt like after, you know, mom's mom died and dad's mom died, the family started to drift further apart. But I've got two resident experts here to (laughs) kind of talk and see what, how they feel like the family has changed or not changed since 
we've had the passing of, you know, um, our grandmothers. So I've got mom here, a fan favorite. And um, Nevin, I'd love to hear what you guys have thought, like after grandmother has died, if you felt like her family has changed in any way. Well, I think um, when my mom died, she was the glue to us getting together for the Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's type of functions. Um, But I think other people in the family tried to carry it on. It may not have been as frequent, but I still think it it transpired. Um, In fact, Nevin and I just attended Thanksgiving dinner with my nephew. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't another female doing it. Um, It was him and his wife. Of course, his wife is leading it. His wife did the majority of the cooking and all of that. And she tends to pull us together for Thanksgiving during the summer. Um, And I always tell her how I appreciate that because I used to do it once mom died, um, but found it very challenging. Um, Why? I found it challenging because, number one, trying to figure out a good date, because I don't really think it needs to be a Thanksgiving or a Christmas and all of that. Tried to do it in the summer, tried to do it in May when it is the um, kind of birthday for my nephew, for my niece, and where it's warm outside so we could be outside. And I think some of the issues are, you know, people are so spread out now. We all don't live in the same city anymore. So you have to let people know ahead of time, okay, we're going to do this on this date. And I think the younger kids now, their calendars are full. So if you don't let them know early, you're not going to have the younger ones. The older ones will be there, but the younger ones. But now even... With my sister and myself, we're the only ones left out of eight kids. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at attendance, even from the older side and the people that can participate, that becomes limited. But do you feel like the family feels the same? Like, do you felt like it felt the same after grandmother died? I think it feels the same. I mean, the love, I think, is there. It's just different. Mm. Where with her, I think you felt the embrace. And now I still feel the love because I'm the only one. Well, I'm in the city and my kids are in another city. So I always feel I can call on my nieces to come and say, will you help me? Mm-hmm. And they're there 24 seven. So even though we're spread out, I think the love is still strong. Mm. Well, no? and y- you know, uh, I'm going to use uh, the framework or the words that you did, mom, because I just love them. Mm-hmm. Like the love is there, but maybe the embrace is not as strong. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, because I think the the love, right, is individual. And I think I feel that with one-on-ones or reaching out to our family but I think that that embrace feels different or not as strong because we used to have a lot of big gatherings where it felt like a collective embrace right so we're being Mm -hmm. hugged by everyone and you really there are times where you feel all that love come together and so when you were talking 
mom, I thought about two two things came up for me. One was <clears throat> one was like the role of gender roles, right? Because I was curious, like, yeah, you talk about um, cousin or, or cousin uh, and his wife, and I'm like, yeah, there there is a consistent meeting, and I and but I wonder, right, if that is mainly through the organizing of his wife, because I think about our uncles, at least on our dad's side, there's not, right, they're not throwing big things or gatherings. And I also think there are, they're mostly, if not all, single men. And so Mm -hmm. if it was like this also gender role of like organizing and family. Right, right. And for my nephew that gives the gatherings, I may have said cousin, but he's your cousin. Yeah, he's my my nephew. Yeah, he's my Um. It is his wife, and she goes all out to make sure that there's enough for everybody, and they do that at least twice a year, and I think with the younger kids, too, people think about money. I mean, you're looking at, for our family, a nice chunk of change to feed everybody for the menu that they have, Um, usually it's a huge spread. She leaves nothing unturned. So um, that becomes a concern too, I think, when you're hosting a gathering. How much money is it going to cost? What side can I invite? Mm. How many people can I have? To me, the family feels different, like on both sides, like on dad's side and on your side. That maybe it's just what you said that we don't get together as often. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't feel as united. But like even dad's side, I remember like getting together for Thanksgivings and Christmases and stuff like that. And really the women driving that. Like Aunt Stella, you know, played a huge played a huge part in that. And um obviously grandma being there, people would want to come and see her. And now that like Nevin said, there's less women you know, women presence in that family, it feels like we don't get together at all or or as often for sure. And similar to your side is like, maybe those gatherings are happening and maybe they're just more informal, but because we live out of state, Mm -hmm. um, we are not privy to those like, Hey, let's meet up cause let's go do this. Right. Right. And so it feels like, to me, it felt like the family was like, falling apart when you talk about kind of the dissolution of our family or, or these changes a worry right for me is what happens when these matriarchal figures that we have that are really the glue like what happens when they start to go away and I think some there's some sadness in that for some of our, our grandmothers already dying but like this we're, we're grieving the loss and we have to grieve the loss of them as individual people but there's a loss in this sense of kinship yeah part of me too mom like I don't know if this is normal right like I haven't lived through matriarchs dying like this like it's part of like this reorganizations of families normal right because grandmothers die and then you have to kind of pick up the pieces and do people form these smaller family units right Mm -hmm. because long gone are the times where women have like eight to ten kids and so the other thing is we've had these matriarchs who've had these huge families Mm -hmm. and in and of itself it being like you know, a gathering of 40 people was like a normal gathering Mm -hmm. because women had eight to 10 kids and they all had kids. Mm -hmm. Right. But once they've died, is it normal for families to sort of kind of reorganize and make these smaller pods? We're we're all obviously still family, but it's not going to be the same as like 40 people 
coming together like they used to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, really, I saw the change when my older aunt died. Her name was Marie. She organized everything. She paid for everything. She bought a family house, brought her sisters up from Alabama, and she was the mover and the shaker. I mean, owned several properties so that her her sisters and brothers had somewhere to live when they moved from Alabama. So once she died, it had to reorganize. Mm-hmm. And that's when Aunt Maymay tried to take over and do some things. And then when my Aunt Maymay died, we all gathered at her house, which was in the city, mm-hmm. which was convenient for everybody, mm-hmm. versus being at my mom's house, which was out too far, everybody thought. And it wasn't until Aunt Maymay died that folks didn't have a choice but to come (laughs) to my mom's house. Um, And the numbers started to dwindle because everybody didn't want to ride all the way out there. Um, And then once mom died, um, and with mom dying, the older sister died the same year. So, which ended up being... Aunt Fifi tried to keep it going. So we would do it in the park, do it at my house, or wherever to try to keep keep it going. But as I said, um, the only younger people that have been doing it is my niece and my nephew. They are really trying, but I think they're trying because it was embedded in them from their mom. Like, this is what you have to do to carry on the family. I'm grateful for that because it gives me a break. Um, and I don't feel like I have to, and I feel like it's the younger folks turn to keep it going because <laughs> I'm not going to be here forever. And they're pretty good at it. So much of what mom said, you know, we talked about a little earlier in our podcast about kinship and how, um, families would double up in households, especially those that were, had had houses, you know, in the North and mm-hmm. their other family members were kind of coming up. So like you tied that together beautifully. So Nevin and mom, like, what would you say your hopes and dreams are for the future of the black family? My dream would be when I grew up, we had a family house. My aunt lived on the first floor. We lived on the second floor. Another aunt lived on the third floor. And I think we need to get back to that. I think that's what we're missing. We're better off um, mentally, financially, Mm. um, emotionally, because we were able to stroke each other in the times that each unit, if they had things going on. Mm. You know, when my mom left to go somewhere, she didn't have to worry about it because she had family in the house. So I think that's the key. Everybody doesn't need 3,200 square feet, Mm -hmm. 4,000 square feet. And if you gotta have that much space, why not fill it with family again like we used to? And I think because we moved away from that, we're not, we don't have the kind of ties we used to have. Mm. So I think we need to look at what used to work, sucker back, and try to blend it again. That's my dream. 
I would love to have family in the house. So you're saying you're going to move back to Chicago? (laughs) The cold here is disrespectful. I can deal with the cold in Ohio. Chicago, not so much. Nevin, what's your hope and dream for the future of the Black family? Well, let me just speak on a little bit what mom said, because um, I think what's so funny is that's one of the reasons I bought my house and and I don't want to ever sell it. One, because it's affordable, I think. And uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's affordable in that I could actually see me like possibly like down the road to get another place and continue to pay for this place and it'd be like that familial home. But I, I think mom uses particular language like the family has moved away from, but I want to call attention to the systems uh, of oppression at play that might mm-hmm. have made it difficult for you know our generations to buy property. Um, because what you're speaking to, mom, right, to me is uh, an ode to also like the accruement of wealth, like within home ownership. And that because there was a home owned, I think about our cousins who used to live in Aunt Mamie's old house, right? And how they were mm-hmm. able to move because it was like, I think partially or mostly paid for and able to move mm-hmm. in grandmother's house because it's partially emotionally paid for but i think like right that security that you get from just shelter and having that basic need met allows you to do other things um mm-hmm. and and that's a you know like a like a piece of like wealth uh in my opinion that allows for safety i wish for black families and overall is just liberation uh, and so that for, for a lot of this, especially given what we talked about, I think it's liber- liberation from the idea that households need to be run by men or that they're a problem with matriarchal households. Um, yeah. And so that we can just continue or to start to uplift Black women in the ways that we should um, and, and celebrate them and celebrate different households and all what they look like um, and normalize them. My hope and dream for the Black family, most of all, is that they continue and thrive, that they're able to thrive and that structures are dismantled so that Black families in whatever their form and whatever their hopes um, are able to achieve them, really. Word. Stay bold, listeners. <laughs> Listen to you. I like it. Bye. Bye. Pay for this. Say it again. How much do I get paid for this? <laughs> you ain't doing this for free, girl? No, child. Look, <laughs> a girl need a check. But second emotion. (laughs) I don't even know if those were all the words, but that's fine.